Today we're going to have our scripture reading from James 5, one of, uh, one of my most favorite, honestly pretty clickbaity passages in the whole Bible. So I'd like to call up Brian to be our lector for today. James 5, verse 1 through 12. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. James 5, verse 1 through 12. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that we would be those who persevere under temptation, under trial in these last days. We ask, Lord, that you would strengthen us for every good work, that our hearts would be established, that we would be able to uh, stand when testing comes, and that we would be those who are with you, following you, loving you, obeying you. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, raise us up and teach us in the knowledge and fear of the Lord, that we would, not do, we would not miss for ourselves what we would attempt to accomplish for our children. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to us today, and we welcome you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As a, one of the first generation on the internet, uh, someone, I was born in 1983. I remember the days of dial-up and so on. The, one of the things that really kind of hasn't changed about the internet from the earliest days until now is the presence of clickbaity headlines. Back in the days, it was when, when email was a much bigger part of our lives than it is today. The, one of the foundational things of the internet was the chain letter email that said, 10 things you need to pray for America. And then at the end of the, and then at the end of that email, chain email, it would say, if you really love Jesus, you will forward this to 20 people. And if not, remember he is coming soon. You know, and like, as you can see, many of these things have survived into the present internet, although now it's like websites where to get to each of the 10 things, you'd have to click on another, click on another link again, right, to maximize probably their ad hits. But uh, clickbait is one of those things you use to grab a person's attention so that you can get them to pay attention to something they wouldn't normally do, right? So we normally think that if we see something that's especially bold and especially shocking, and the word shocking itself is clickbait, right? I couldn't believe this shocking thing. 
that this person said to me. And then you, you read it, and you're like, oh, that's kind of a nothing burger, right? There's just, there's no, we say that something is clickbait if it has lots of flash but no substance. And when we read the Bible, sometimes we have this little problem where we'll take a short little passage and we will read it by itself. And in some ways, the Bible kind of works against us. The way that our Bible today is structured kind of works against us with that because it's divided up into chapters and numbers. So there can be a verse of the day that gives you one verse, which is a very artificial way of dividing it. And not only that, a lot of you have those little chapter, not even chapter, but kind of like section headings, which will say like the day of the Lord or warning to the rich or something like that. And we're like, oh, this is the part of it we should be reading. But when we do that, sometimes we miss the fact that there, there, is, there are parts to that that follow it or came before it that would actually help us make sense of what it is that we're reading. In other words, we kind of get suckered in by the clickbait, and we go, whoa, that's so shocking. And then we don't actually read the rest of it, which would help it make sense. Part of what I like about this part of James, that, uh, chapter 5, uh, it's maybe not quite as tattoo-worthy as something in chapter 1 or chapter 4, but it, it, it's, there is a little bit of that element of uh, that shock that sort of goes, wait a minute, I thought I knew what this book was like, and I did not know the book would be like this, right? Because this book, uh, the book of James, or as we like to call it, Jacob, he, he likes to call us to practical living. He likes to say, how can we deal with living in a world that is uh, nasty to us, in a world where we will, we will be tested on a day-to-day basis, and we, we are expected to show that we trust God by what it is that we do. Very practical book, a book that worries a lot about relationships, a book that has a lot to say about managing your own heart, things like this, right? And then all of a sudden, you get just absolutely pasted by, cha- by chapter 5, and you say, wait a minute, what did I just read? So in case you, didn't, uh, you weren't sufficiently scandalized the first time, let's read it again. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Feel free to picture that one in your mind if you can. Ah, oh, the, the, the rich weeping and howling. Your riches are rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. If that's not clickbait, tell me what is. You have laid up treasure in these last days. Behold, the wages of the laborer who, mows your, who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So in case you didn't catch all of the shocking ten things that, you know, that James proclaims upon the rich, then, you, then if you somehow missed it, he commanded them to mourn and howl because of the coming judgment, the miseries that are coming, that their riches and garments have rotted, right? This is a, a flashback, callback kind of when Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on heaven 
where moth and rust destroy, right? He, he makes reference here directly to the moth and to the rust. But he goes a step further and he says, they will eat at your flesh like fire. They're like, whoa, that's, that's hardcore, man. Like, again, evidence of James being the most metal book in the New Testament. Then he, he goes on and he says that, that the, this, this whole thing about the wages of the harvester crying out against him, that, that, this, that there's this sense of this, this economic fraud that these folks are carrying on. And then he has my personal favorite, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And this makes me think of foie gras. If you're not familiar with what foie gras is, people force feed geese, which is absolutely as brutal as it sounds. It is, it's, I had to read through the whole process. It's pretty brutal. People force feed the geese to, to make their livers unusually fatty. Like it tricks them into thinking it's migration season where, where their livers get fatty. And then they get like five times fattier than they would normally get during a migration. And then they slaughter them and they make the liver into pate. That's what foie gras is. And he's saying these are people who are like geese fattening themselves to be made into foie gras. They're, they're just gorging and gorging and gorging and gorging, not realize that they are gorging themselves right before a day of slaughter. Uh, just what a, an outrageously picturesque and frankly disturbing way of describing the, uh, the rich life. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Definite Jesus language there, right? So if we read this and, we, and you said, okay, guys, that's the whole passage, then maybe we could do something with that. But it would be pretty rough, wouldn't it? We probably would end up preaching a message that might sound where you'd say, well, time out. David is, has to, you know, put on his, uh, that David has to put on his best Karl Marx impression this week, right? Because we're just going to, we're going to spend the whole week banging on the rich. And if, and if we did that, we would kind of be missing out, wouldn't we? There, there'd be something here that would be lost, on where this passage is going. Because one of the things about the rich, and this isn't just true of us today, if we're being honest, it's true of people always, is that people love to slam the rich. They're an easy target. There aren't many of them. That's like one of the characteristics of being rich, right? If there were a lot of rich people, you wouldn't have richness. You just have inflation. So, well, it's, there's a joke there too, but I'll, I'll pass that, that low-hanging fruit. Um, but there's... It's really easy to rag on the rich because there aren't many of them. They're generally not us, and they are, they're just easy targets. Big targets, easy targets. But what J James is really aiming at here is not just the rich, but he's aiming at a whole way of thinking, a whole way of life, an attitude that we can go through. And one of the things that you'll find, um, the more that you think about this and study this and, and go at this, is that it is really not confined just to the rich of this world, not just to those who have a bank account that's higher than a particular monetary value, but it's, it's a whole system of thinking. And one of the ways you can really see this is how he follows it up. There's a little um, structure that sometimes happens in the Bible, and it's called chiasm, or sometimes chiasmus, if, you're, if the, the guy whose commentary you're reading is sufficiently likes to sound smart. And what it is, is, is it's real simple. It's just kind of like, it goes that the ideas in a passage go A, B, C, C, B, A. 
Like, he'll say a bunch of things, and then he'll read them back to you, kind of. Like, he'll say, God is good. God is powerful. God is holy. Uh, we, should be, we should be holy. We should be good. We should be powerful. Oh, I think I reversed two things there. But you get the idea. It takes three qualities, and then it puts those three qualities back in the opposite order. And th this is something that James does here. And he does it in order to say, I don't want you to be the way that, that people outside the church are living right now. And he describes the way that they're living, and he ties it into this whole way of thinking. Let's call it, um, let, let's call it the, the materialist, the materialist, the material way of thinking. And he starts to say, I don't want you to live like this. If you live like this, you're never going to stand up before the coming judgment. But there's a whole other way to think and feel and live. And sure enough, it's going to tie back into a lot of the themes that James has already been bringing out throughout the rest of his book. Uh, perseverance and controlling your tongue and um, loving your brothers and sisters and things like that. So if you were to then go on from, from 5, 1 through 6, and you got through all the, the clickbaity parts... Now, I should warn you here, right, if you open it in your Bibles, how many of you, you have another topic heading by verse 7? Anybody? In my Bible, the ESV, which is my, generally my preferred translation, uh, 1 through 6 is labeled as warning to the rich, and then 7 through 12 is labeled patience and suffering, and it makes it sound like it's two different topics, but in reality, this is, you should always read these, these, these 12 verses together. You know why? Because in the first six, he's saying, this is how people outside the church live. And then in 7 through 12, he says, but this is how you should live. And he turns around and negates each of the evil words that's been spoken in the first six verses. So if you look, he says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And that reverses, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. When you see that weep and howl part, how, how is he saying that the day of the Lord is for those, who are, for, for those who are rich? It's a cause for weeping and howling, right? It's a, it's a time where they have invested their whole life in, on a bad bet, and now they've lost everything. Now they've been reduced to misery. On the other hand, how is it that those who are following the Lord should think about these things? He's saying we wait for it patiently as if it's like Christmas or our birthday. The, the coming of the Lord is that exciting. We wake up and we go, ah, maybe the Lord's coming today. Like a little child waking up going, it's Christmas morning, going to, to wake up their parents. So he says, be patient until the, the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. So do you see how we have this farmer metaphor again? Before, he compared the rich guy to the rich guy who, who has the, uh, the poor man mowing his field. They do that to make hay, by the way, for the animals. But you, you have this guy who is, who is farming, and farming in a way that's predatory. And here, you have the patient farmer Who's waiting for the who's waiting for the latter and uh, and the early and the latter rains for the fruit? So you have this like reversal of the first six verses 
And what you have is there are two ways to live, two mindsets, two paths, not just between someone who has, you know, $400,000 in their bank account versus someone who has $400 in their bank account. It's not that simple, no. He's saying there, is a, there are two roads before each one of us. And in the way that we think and the way that we feel, in the way that we speak to others, in the ways that we picture ourselves, we can walk down either of these roads. And we're going to have to choose between the two. And one of these paths leads to death, and one of them leads to life. So you also be patient. Now, if you guys have known me for a while, you know one of the things that I'm a big believer in whenever you read a Bible passage is look for the imperatives. Look for the imperatives. Imperatives are the verbs that say, hey, do this, do that, or sometimes don't do this, right? Because the imperatives tell you, what do I need to change? And the first imperative here, the first one that says, how do I live like a someone who, who deserves life, like a righteous person, and not like one of these wicked rich sinners, you know, who are going to have their flesh eaten like fire, then the, the way that we receive that, the first one he says is be patient. Be patient. We are looking for the coming of the Lord. How many of you would, would characterize yourself as being good at being patient? Okay. I've gotten better. I used to be awful at being patient. I've, I've improved over the course of time. But, but being patient is honestly something our culture does not prepare us for. Unless you live during the era of dial-up. In which case, yes, your culture did train you for being patient. But even then, how many of you ever searched a card catalog to find a library book? Anybody else here? Anyone here ever searched a, a card catalog to find a library book? This is like an age check, not going to lie. Huh? Just you and I, and Kevin, apparently. But it's, uh, I see you. Okay. I, I, I could have named things that were even more obscure, like, like searching for research on a microfiche or something, but I didn't want to get too obscure too quickly. But it's, nowadays, if we want to find things, we can find things really fast. If, if, I, if, I, if I get a factual detail wrong, someone kind of said, huh, I thought that, and they can fact check me before I've gone another three sentences in my preaching, Okay. And I'm going, to see, I'm going to find out about it on Slack after the service, right? These are the things that, I don't mind being fact-checked, by the way. Go ahead. I have, I have no pride in this area. But, it's, um, but, but when he says, be patient, what he's saying is, we are oftentimes tempted to try to, to, try to grab and control and fix our lives. We see something about, we see something that is unacceptable to us. So we say, this is unacceptable. So we start drumming up support. We start, we start working to control our situation as best as we possibly can. Uh, if we have, and it's easy for us to start trying to do things like manipulate the people around us. If you're a small time manipulator, it means maybe you'll start trying to guilt the people around you to give you what you want. 
like perhaps your kids or your parents, um, by, by various methods, many of us, them familiar to us as Asian Americans, right? The use of, of words to, to manipulate emotions and get the results we want. On the other hand, if you're a big time manipulator, you, you might write up a compelling com opinion piece, post it on your blog, start a Kickstarter or a GoFundMe, and start saying, we need to solve this societal problem. And you start playing the big time uh, emotional manipulation buttons. Regardless, whichever, whether we're a small-time manipulator or a big-time manipulator, it's a lot easier for us to manipulate than it is for us to be patient and wait for the judgment of the Lord. It's so much harder to be patient and say, God, I know that you have this situation. I know it's in your hands. Help me to trust you. I want to believe you. So much of what so much of what creates this the, this warning to the rich has to do with the grabbing on for power, for control, for getting what we want. This whole idea of the trusting in the riches to deliver us power and authority, trusting in the luxury to get us the the pleasure and the prestige that we are seeking, as if somehow if I have enough upward mobility it will vindicate me and justify me as a human being. If only I get the promotion, if only I get that high-paying job, if only I can wear whatever the, the designer clothing is for this year, or this half of the year, or this quarter of the year, then, then, we will, then, then, I will be, then I will be validated as a human being, and people will realize that I have, in some way, made it. And consequently, if I fall short of that, that I have somehow failed. And James is saying, don't get pulled into that game. Don't be brought into seeking this, seeking this, this getting ahead and the upward mobility as the way to solve all your problems. No. He said, we are not about that. We're about waiting like the farmer to see the results of, the, of these early and these latter rains. And he says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, establish your hearts is one of those, establish is one of those verbs that's not really super meaningful for us, okay? So I want to illustrate it for you guys. Can you come on up here, Alden? Can I borrow you for a second? Uh, Alden's convenient because I know that he's a lot bigger than I am and a lot, a lot stronger than I am. I know from past experience he is considerably stronger than I am. And I just pushed him a few, a few feet across the room. Now, we're going to show you what does it mean to establish your heart. Here, friend. Lower your center of gravity. Like, drop your weight down. Spread your shoulders. Put your hands out. Push me. What did Eldon do? Thank you, my friend. What does it look like to establish your heart? What is the posture of your heart? To establish means to affix, to strengthen, to fortify. You, I might say to dig in. That's what it is to establish. An, an Alden who doesn't know what I'm going to do, and he's just like standing around saying, oh, I'm being called up for a sermon illustration. You can just push him around, right? And it's not because he's weak. It's not. 
So many of us, we face spiritual warfare, and we get moved, and we get, whoa, my life is all wibbly-wobbly. And we go, how did this happen? And we assume it's because we're in some way spiritually weak. And that's not necessarily the case. Again, Alden's a lot stronger than I am, believe me. No, you are. I've wrestled you before, Alden, in Honduras. So, the, um, so, but what did happen was he was off balance. He was not on his guard, right? He was not established. But you'd see, once he sets his feet and drops his weight, he's spreading his shoulders, he's ready. He's, now he's in a grappling stance, right? This is all about the stance of your heart. Establish your heart because the Lord is coming. We don't walk around just going, hi guys, just meandering through this life. No, we go through this life the way that you walk through a neighborhood where you think you could be mugged at any moment. You say, I'm, whatever's coming, I'm ready for it. I'm prepared for it. I'm alert. I'm looking around. I'm not walking around, you know, watching YouTube I'm, or TikTok, I guess. I'm, you, I'm still uh, trying to catch up with the times a little bit. But it's, there is a, uh, when we say establish your heart for the coming of the day of the Lord, we, we are living intentionally in the light of judgment. Living intentionally in the light of judgment. One of the most meaningful things I've ever heard about Islam, the, the religion of Islam, is that every morning, the first thing they're supposed to do when they wake up, as they would say, the moment that you can distinguish a white thread from a black thread on the back of your hand, they're weirdly specific about things like that. You are supposed, each Muslim is supposed to pray, I know that I will be judged for all of the things that I do today. And that at the end of every day, when you can no longer distinguish a white thread from a black thread on the back of your hand, because again, weirdly specific, you're supposed to pray, I know that I will be judged for all of the things that I did today. That is a biblical attitude, guys. That really is. If we were aware that we would be judged, and that we are being judged, for all of the things that we did today, we would live differently. Not that we would live in condemnation, as if God is the one trying to waggle the finger and emotionally manipulate us, because God is not interested in emotional manipulation. But what he is interested in doing is calling our attention to our bad investments. He's interested in calling our attention to our bad investments. Why does James say that for the rich, that the corrosion of their wealth will eat up their flesh like fire? It's, it's a particularly vivid mental image, isn't it? It kind of reminds me of the story of, uh, of Gehazi, which we shared about, I think, in the previous sermon series, who, who wanted money for giving out, the, for giving out healing and who ends up with, with the, uh, the leprosy of the leper who got healed. In pursuing money, he ends up eating up his own flesh, right? I almost wonder if James actually has that story in mind. But why he describes it that way is because so much of why we pursue money is about trying to save our own skin, isn't it? So much of it is about to say, well, if anything happens to me, I'll be secure. I can pay for medical bills. I can pay for security systems. I can live in a better neighborhood. I can create security and peace for myself. And what ends up happening 
in the, in, the way that they're, in, in the way that James's rich person thinks is. James's rich person is choosing material stuff above the rest of humanity. He's choosing material stuff above the rest of humanity. You have this whole thing where he is, he is accumulating all of this material possessions, but he, but he is neglecting the, the laborer whom he has hired, and he is also persecuting the righteous man. And this is, it's easy for us to go, hmm, you know, and to, to get all preachy about this until we realize that often the ones who do this the most are us. It's us. How do we view job interviews? How do we view education, our own and our children? How many of us were pushed to believe that the mark of our success as a human being is how well we do in school so that we can one day get into a better college so that we can one day get a better job? And then we evaluate ourselves by how good we are at making money, how good we are at going on beautiful vacations, how good we are on you know, all the things that we can get with money, whether it's a nicer house, living in a better neighborhood. How many of us think about success as a family in terms of what we can provide materially for our children? Will our children have more stuff than the people next to us? Will they have better, more resources? Will they have a better neighborhood? a better educational system. And at the same time, we can pursue all of the things, all the stuff of this world and not see the human cost that any of it is actually inflicting. And that's really where James is pushing us with this. He's saying, don't be a person who prioritizes stuff over people who are made in God's image, over those who we should love, over the things that have actual value. This is why he's saying that the corrosion of these people's stuff will eat up their flesh like fire. Because in many ways, in trying to save their skin, they have money for skin. They're, they're, who they are has become changed by what they have pursued. Because we become what we behold. If your eyes are fixed on a better job, new money, a bigger house, then when, then when those things are destroyed, you lose your own very life because, you're, because that's where all of the treasure of your heart is. To put it a little differently, if you've sunk, if you've sunk hundreds, thousands of li- hours of your life into a particular game, getting to max level, acquiring the rarest of the rare items, and th- then when the server breaks down, your life is over, doesn't it? Right? What happens when, when society then moves on to the next game? Do you then leave everything behind? You're like, oh, got to start the grind again. You, you've, you've lost your whole life because you've invested it in a bad investment. And those who are not gamers are going like, ha, 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 what stupid gamers. And then they'll go off and do the same thing, but with like dollars, which are just as certain to end in the judgment as anything that existed in World of Warcraft. So you, so, and this is, what, this is where James is pointing us. He's saying, come on, guys, watch out. Investing in this world and not being rich towards God is a terrible investment. It's like, it's like making yourself a goose before the day of slaughter. This is establish your hearts. Be on your guard. Be ready. Be prepared. You're going to be assaulted by 
the love of money. You're going to be assaulted by the desire to judge your fellow man. Your enemy, the devil, is lurking around, he says elsewhere in the book. And he wants you to be on your guard against these things. So similarly, he has, in, he has said against the rich that, that you have ignored the complaint of the, of the, uh, the laborer who mowed, your, who mowed your lawn. He doesn't literally mowed your lawn. He means like they've cut your grass to make hay. But this field laborer, you haven't paid him, and he's crying out to me against you, right? Well, in the second half, where he says this is how you should live, he says, grumble not. I don't, do not grumble. It makes it a little harder to see it's an imperative. But if you phrase it as grumble not, you would see the imperative. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So if we're not people who seek our own benefit, who are seeking to get stuff above all else, what are we supposed to be? We're supposed to be people who are brothers and sisters within the community, the church. And that means that we cannot afford to grumble against one another. Okay, real talk time, guys, okay? Blueprint has always put it out there that we are a family of Jesus followers. Amen? Those of you who aren't familiar with this language, this is from our mission statement as a church. We say, we are a family of Jesus followers who seek together to host the presence of God in our entire lives through knowing him and making him known in our communities. But part of what it means to be a family of Jesus followers means that we're going to be close, right? It means we're going to be sharing things. And part of what that looks like, especially because of like the whole Asian-American like closeness, relational dynamic we have going on, means that a lot of the time we're going to be all up in each other's business. It means that if we are not really, really careful, gossip is re can set in really easily, okay? And, and gossip is one of the most viciously anti-kingdom of God things that can possibly exist. I would so much rather deal with people in our congregation committing literal crimes than have to deal with gossip. Because gossip, without, because if someone commits a crime, then you can have people go, all right, I'll visit you in prison, and I'll sit with you at your trial, and we'll pray for you. But if you have gossip, ain't nobody wants to sit with you, okay? It's, you, it breaks down the fundamental rules of trust that make the church go. When, when you have people that know that if they tell you something about their life, everyone's going to know it in the next two days. And this is why he said, do not grumble against one another, brothers. Because he knows, once you start that grumbling, this is how you're going to see the breakdown of relationship. This is where you're going to see people seek their own gain through manipulation. This is where you're going to see people gain their own benefit by sacrificing their brother or their sister. So this do not grumble thing, it sounds like a small thing. But remember that the other path leads to leads to being fattened for the day of slaughter. And you say, maybe this is kind of a big deal. Maybe I should be listening to him when he, when he says, grumble not. That the stakes are much higher than we think they are. And final, and uh, he says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, pointing to patience again, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. 
he points to Job. If you'd asked me to do it, I would have pointed probably to Jeremiah. But you see, you see throughout the scriptures people who are, who are called to deliver a message that they know will bring them criticism, and they deliver it, and they take criticism, and they just power through it, and they keep going. Uh, Jeremiah is thrown into a dry well, which is super muddy and gross and disgusting and unbelievably dark. And if you're claustrophobic, you're probably having a panic attack just hearing about it. But it's, but it's, and he gets out, and he keeps preaching, and he continues. Uh, in the story of Job, you have the story of the guy who is, who is righteous, who is suffering, and he just hangs on doggedly, stubbornly, to the idea that God is good and will, and will be with him and will help him. And at the end of the book, he's proven correct. God loves him. He's merciful to him. And this is so much of what, this is so much of what James is trying to say. He's saying, look, guys, it's easy for us to believe when we're going through trial, when we're going through hardship, that God doesn't care. It's easy for us to grab on and say, well, if God won't do it, I'll do it. And we get on our whole American uh, anti-hero, action hero persona, and we're like, I'll do it myself. And we, and we try to manipulate and grab and take and do and we solve all of our own problems using all of our own strength. And James is saying you won't like where that gets you. Because if, because if you're seeking to use manipulation, if you're seeking to get more stuff, if you're seeking to get more power, whether it's in your personal life, whether it's in your family life, whether it's in your political life, this, trying, this, this attempt to seize control will only lead you to be one of those who weep, and, who weep and howl at the judgment when all of these things are taken away from us and when the book of our life is opened. Who is the person who rejoices at the judgment? The person who is patient. The person who loves. Who refuses manipulation at every turn. Who says, I'm living for something much greater and much longer lasting than mere money. Someone who has obtained eternal life, where their, where their life is not bound up in what, they want, in what they own. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. He's saying, how, how determined should we be not, not, to seize, not to manipulate or do anything by our own strength? He says, look, guys, don't even swear. Don't even be like, I, I, pinky, I pinky promise. I had a joke about that uh, earlier in the service with somebody, that you know, we wouldn't pinky swear because the passage tells us not to swear. Well, why is this? It's because he's saying, if I, make, if I take an oath, then I am honor-bound to, to, to do it. I'm going to have to do it by hook or by crook. Like, you, you have to be by the Bible's way of thinking, true to your word. Breaking your word is one of the worst ways to be like God, right? Because God always keeps his word. And if you know you got to keep it no matter what, you're going to have to fight for it. And there are so many things, James would say, that are out of your control. How do I know? What if I say, I promise you, I will bring, I will bring you your Christmas gift next week, no matter what, come hell or high water? Well, what happens if I catch COVID next week? Am I still going to bring you your gift? What happens if my car breaks down? What happens if 
There might be something that would make me liable in the judgment, right? And this is why he says, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Why swear about it? It's so that we can, it's so that we live in a way which is humble, which cares about others, which doesn't brag about ourselves. That we say, look, I barely know what's happening 10 minutes from now, never mind 10 years from now. Let's choose to be a people who lift one another up, who love one another, who honor one another, who refuse to grumble. Let's be a people who are, who are humble in all of our ways, who refuse manipulation, and who understand that material things are ultimately not nearly as valuable to us as building relationship. And the more that we do these things, the more that we live this way, the more that we turn away from the pursuit of, of more money and the, the corner office and better benefits, the more that we're going to see the, the, the coming judgment as a joy and not as a cause for howling. Let's recognize ourselves in the face of these poor rich so that we, so that we are not those who will be destroyed at the, on that day, but that we will be those who stand and rejoice and even party. Let's pray. Father, we know that the day is coming where, where the Lord Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. And when that day comes, Lord, we will be judged for everything that we have said and done, for all that we have heard and approved of, for all that we could have spoken and did not speak. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to be patient and wait for that day, putting our trust in you to be the one who provides. We ask, Lord, that you would turn us away from all forms of manipulation. That, Lord, we would be able to, to, to turn over the keys to our life. That we would no longer seek to control all things but that we would be able to humbly submit to your control, to your kingdom, to your way of love. So Father, as we take this bread, the broken body of Jesus, would you help us to submit to being broken? Would we be willing, Lord, to say yes to you even if it stands, if we, even if our yes comes at great cost to ourselves, would you help us, Lord, to swallow our pride to obey you, to be the first person to apologize, to reach out to the folks who don't appreciate us, to do thankless work for your sake? We choose to follow the way of Jesus, to be the persecuted righteous man rather than risk persecuting the righteous man. We choose today to choose the cross. And Lord, as we embrace your way, the way of suffering, would you remind us again in this cup 
that the time of joy is coming. That these light and momentary afflictions are gaining for us a weight of glory beyond all that we could ask for or imagine. We ask, Lord, that when we drink the cup anew with Jesus in his kingdom, that all of the suffering, that all of the patience of this life would pay off and that we would know that we have invested well. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to establish our hearts, to stand firm, to be ready, and so not to be taken unawares when the day of evil comes. Be with us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This table is the, this table is the body and the blood of the Lord. This is the strength to walk this out on a day-to-day -day basis. This is our choice to be broken. This is our choice to, to, to wait for the Lord's coming. When we come up here and, let's, and eat it, let's not take it in a casual or lackadaisical way. Let's establish our hearts as we take it. Amen? If we're willing to do it, let's come and receive from the table of the Lord. Okay, let's mourn and howl a little. Some of us, as we've been hearing these words today, and we've heard James go through it, we knew there was something in there that, uh, that it hit something in us. For some of us, we know that we've been seeking the, the approval and the validation of this world. We've sought to be successful on the basis of what we have our, our credentials, our material possessions, the, exactly the things that will be wiped out at the judgment. And we know that it's time to reinvest and, and, and to, to build in what will last. And if that's you today, this is our time to mourn and to wail. This is our time to turn our hearts to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to be different. I, want, I don't want to go in that direction. I want to reroute. I want to make a U-turn. Making U-turn is what repentance really means. For some of you, you realized that much of your life has been built on manipulation, on saying yes to the manipulation of others and on saying yes to manipulating others. You've, you've known how to use your words to hurt, to make people feel things and do what you want. And you recognize, and, and perhaps now the Holy Spirit is showing you that you must learn differently, that we need to make a U-turn. And today, this is our chance to weep and to mourn. Perhaps we've just said, well, I don't care what people think as long as I meet my goals. And that's exactly how we end up building on stuff that will eat up our flesh like fire. Let's choose today to turn away from our self-centered way of thinking and to look to the example of Jesus. If that's you right now, let's just, let's just come to him and seek him and let's turn. Father, if this passage is called warning to the rich, which of us is not rich? Which of us does not know the woe? Which of us does not need to repent? 
we stand guilty. We stand condemned. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Give us clear and, un and unobstructed intersections with which to U-turn. Give us a clear path to repentance. Show us in which relationships we must repent and be healed, in which we must apologize and receive forgiveness. Help us, Lord, not to get ahead in this age and go bankrupt in the age to come. Help us to be those who love your appearing. And bring us, Lord, to the place where we would have no fear in the day of judgment. For as you are, so have we been in this world. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. As soon as I say those words, this is the official end of our service, blah, blah, blah. The service will be over, and it will be easy for us to forget to establish our hearts. It will be easy for us to walk out and be all chill, and hey guys, what's up? And we'll go through, and it'll be easy for us to go right back to the old way of thinking, to seeking our own advantage, to forgetting about investing in forever. Book of James ain't about what we do during service. It's about how we serve during the rest of life. Let's choose today to remember, to establish our hearts, to live intentionally, to be like Jesus. And let's choose to live that out, whether in lunch or during our work week. Amen. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and give you grace. May he lift up his countenance upon you and bring you peace. This is the official end of our service. Let's establish our hearts and love one another until the day that he comes. Amen.